The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield, and joined here as always by John Cuna. Today we're going to be discussing mental health and culture. So I think one of the reasons why we started this podcast um, was to get into, uh, to use sports as a lens to, uh, to look at mental health through. And I think sports is definitely one form of culture. But I think when you talk about culture in general, it, that's a, a pretty broad term, right? I think so. Maybe I'll talk about what culture means and then I'm going to kick it to you to John to talk about you know why it's important I think culture in general I sort of think of it like culture quote-unquote versus a culture or a subculture things like that I think culture as a as a general word again very broad sort of reflects um, I guess collective behavior trends tendencies um, beliefs things like that of, a, of an entire group of people um, or I mean all of us I guess you could go as high as to say global or probably such a thing as global culture in a way and then there's a ton of subcultures that go from from a large scale down to maybe a, a, the smallest possible scale. Um, so I think you know we have different career tracks in terms of what led us to become therapists. Mm-hmm. I know you, you think LMHCs are, are uh, you know superior. Is the word superior. You're for. Yes, that is. Sorry. Yeah, but didn't quite roll off the tongue. Um, <laughs> I am partial maybe to the social work track, uh, being a, a clinical social worker. So in in social work, John, I don't know about you, but we talk about <laughs> systems, right? Yeah, systems there you go. that are at play and. Uh, all the different systems and subsystems that we're a part of, and it could be family, it could be a lot of different things. I mean, it, it, you can go as much as like uh, talking about geographic, um, you know, culture, subcultures, or political, or ethnic, or racial, or religious. Um, age and generation is definitely one. Gender, sexual orientation, um, cultures could be centered around a thing. I mean, that yep. sports is an, uh, an example of that. Video games. Um, you know, there's probably like a, a crypto subculture going on right now sure. or Web3 or whatever. You know, there's yep. a lot of different things going on. Um, and so, you know, I think all those subcultures shape the bigger culture, right? And it's like this huge system that's always changing and always adapting and moving in different directions. And sometimes rapidly, most, most of the things that change culturally are very slow, I would, I would guess. I think mental health is probably an example of that where it's taken quite a long, I mean, if I guess, I mean, in the scheme of things, last five years, six years, things have really changed quite a bit. Yeah, even the last two years, things have changed quite a bit. Before that, though, I, fair to say for decades, the, the pace of change when it comes to mental health awareness, stigma reduction, things like that, very, very slow. So that's what culture is. Um, when it comes to the overlap between, you know, the, co- the, the concept of culture uh, and its various scales and mental health, why would you say that's important? Why does it matter? Um, in terms of like why it matters to be t- t- talking about mental health and, yeah. and its oh, intersection and, and culture, with culture. Yeah, the overlap of those two those Yeah, two I think for, for a few reasons, right? If we sort of boil this down and, and you know have it focused on sports, culture, and mental health, mm-hmm. I think it's a really great way to broaden the, the conversation and bring more people in. Like you had mentioned, the last 
you know, 30, 40 years, mental health in terms of a part of our culture, collective culture, hasn't really been a conversation, right? It's been reserved for the people who have been dubbed like sick or um, crazy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you sort of incorporate mental health into either these subcategories of different cultures, you start to, like you had mentioned, you start to broaden the overall like umbrella culture as a whole. And so when we're talking specifically around sports culture in the last like you said probably since like 2018 ish right around there we've seen this just like bubble eruption of Mm -hmm. mental health in sports and the culture around um mental health in sports has completely shifted right um just recently i think um coach k from duke is now starting his like um what's it called teammates and mental health organization where he's starting an entirely new initiative um the nfl i think seven of the nfl teams have full incorporated people on staff now more people on on the on the way still far behind and we have our own thoughts about like just shoving a person down there to check a box versus actually getting in there and doing work but in terms of shifting culture like you said it does take a lot of time and so it's nice to see when there's more integration and uh, all these different places of different culture, like you said, whether it's sports, whether it's schools, whether it's racial or whatever it happens to be, when you start to see more presence of it, the culture as a whole starts to shift. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an interesting piece because, like you had mentioned, global culture, and I think there's certainly some cultural trends that sort of you know go outside of the United States, but I would say that mental health as a conversation, I'd say the United States and this, I might be woefully wrong in this, in this one. And I'm obviously biased because I live here, but I think that there are lots of places around the world that are behind in the conversation around mental health mm-hmm. specifically with sports. Mm-hmm. Um, the UK is a good example of that, that they're just like behind yep. um, and trying to like catch up now, I think, which is good. But um, I, I think that, it's a really good conversation because when we're trying to, you know, one of our main missions is to just put out information, destigmatize mental health, increase awareness. And if we can find these intersectionalities of different cultures to bring the conversation into, it just feeds into the greater whole. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the UK because, I mean, as you were talking, I'm thinking about like, what are the what are the, the cultures outside the US that are maybe behind and, and why? I think it's different um, depending on where you look. I mean, there are some, I think met, in some ways, this is going to sound... I don't want to say it's going to sound bad, but it's going to sound uh, provocative, I guess. I mean, I think mental health in, to a degree, I wouldn't call it a luxury, but it, it's a thing that's reflective of a lot of other things being taken care of. Like, for instance, the ability right. to find food and the ability to have shelter and, and yeah. not living in poverty. I mean, there's a lot of poverty in the United States as well. Um, but I think comparatively to other countries, it's, you know, the United States has a pretty good uh, painting with a huge broad brush. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of countries that are behind in mental health because they're dealing with war or they're dealing with, um, you know, poverty, famine, things like that. Um, that's different, right? I think you have to have, I always think about, I think it's overused and probably needs to be uh, readapted in a different way, but we always talk about like the hierarchy of needs and, and, and Maslow. That fits. Yeah, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if you look at that pyramid, you know, there's a foundation of things like shelter and food and things that matter. And, um, self-actualization, I think is at the top and I, mental health probably we've woven through all the different areas of it. Right. Um, but without the foundation of those other things, it, 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 it's difficult to get to. Right. And, yeah. and if you look at the way, uh, you know, psychological functioning works or mental health works, it, 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 I wouldn't call it a backup, but it, it, it serves to the physical necessities and the physical safety of, of a human being always comes first, including the, the brain's ability to like use denial and just shutting down right. through something really traumatic to protect the person. Right. Yeah. Now, 
that gets them through that day, does it cause long-term issues? Absolutely. And we've right. talked a lot about the, about long-term issues when it comes to some of the athletes that we've um, sh- tried to shine a light on because they open up about their mental health. You know, that all usually has to do with trauma and, and the prolonged impact of trauma. When a person's going through something traumatic psychologically, they you know their mental health long-term is not what takes precedence. It's the fight or flight kind of how do I protect right. myself kind of mode. So it's interesting because I think there's a lot of countries that are behind for those types of reasons. Then the UK doesn't have that excuse, right? So it's kind of that's where I think different um, aspects of culture kind of weave in. I think um, the, the general culture within the UK, and there's a lot of subcultures within that, whether, whether mm-hmm. it's my country or that kind of thing, um, just doesn't, I wouldn't say they believe in it as much. And, or maybe they're starting to, but I mean, we, we've had a lot of people who have moved here from the UK that reach out to have us work with them or work with their kids. And, I, and this is anecdotal and not based on evidence because it's a small sample size. But the thing I hear the most, I think you've heard it too, is like, we just, we come from England or we come from this part of the UK and they just don't, we don't talk about this stuff. We don't no. believe in it. Uh, so I think from a, a country perspective, they, there's the belief or the buy-in isn't quite there, hasn't quite shifted yet. I think from a family uh, dynamic perspective, in terms of you talk about culture, like culture within families, the MO is to not air your dirty laundry, not talk about uh, things right. like your personal business. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might not be as much about anti-mental health that is as, as much as it is about hey it's not good form to open up your the stuff that's going on under your roof or in your family to anyone else because that's only your business yep that i think is a very entrenched cultural thing in the uk that probably is going to take some time um to change and i think this is why we find sports so interesting because the uk is when we were trying to plan this episode we we're looking at like which cultures are kind of behind the uk is the first one that stood out yeah i know you've talked a lot about I me mean, you're a huge soccer fan we're mm-hmm. not going to get into the whole Messi versus ronaldo thing okay, no you know where you stand go revs though yeah playoff okay. game tonight and that's true yeah um they came out of nowhere um, yeah i have to get some tickets to one of those games in well, these days man. yeah um so we know you're a huge soccer fan and in the uk and you know europe and a lot of other places outside the u.s soccer is massive it's becoming even more big here but it's you know it's interesting because I feel like sports I would guess sports is the thing the vehicle through which that change is going to happen in the UK because yeah. I'm actually surprised that their teams haven't already been the first kind of step in that way of happening but I think it's needed I think it happened needs to happen yesterday you talked a lot John about the fact that prehab and doing those types of things it's not it's not um, it's not a luxury you know, it's a must have these yeah. days and. Yep. I'm kind of surprised that, look, I haven't done a huge deep dive into UK teams and whether they have these services or not. But from what I've read, they're, they're, they're behind American teams in this kind of sense. And it's a shame because I think if that happens quickly and we encourage it to happen quickly, it's going to feed into the culture there and the younger people and the younger generations. Right. Yeah, I think they're still behind in sort of the ideology of how to integrate mental health services. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, for the teams that do potentially have someone, they're sort of guilty, kind of the same as the way that the U.S. is of like, great, fine, we'll, we'll hire a clinician to be full-time staff or we'll hire somebody to work like eight hours a week, which is like ridiculous. It's a good baby step mm-hmm. in the right direction, but it's still under the ideology that we're, it's like a wait and like wait and see yeah. or, um, you know, like we'll, we'll wait around until something goes wrong and then we'll try to, to do some work with that. And I just don't see that that's an effective way to treat people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you would def, you wouldn't wait to train somebody physically until they got hurt and then incorporate best practices for training. You wouldn't mm-hmm. wait for them to get injured until you did that. So mm-hmm. why are we doing the same, like the same modality for, for our mental health? Um, and my, the, the prehab concept is one that I think is, I'm hoping is going to be just become the norm it's just mm-hmm. training it's in another it's another aspect of what you need to be able to do for training and i don't see that stuff happening really 
anywhere. I think there are pockets of athletes who talk about it. And it's a little infuriating because the athletes that talk about it are like Tom Brady and LeBron James and uh, Michael Phelps and Naomi Osaka and Serena. Like you talk about the Mount, the Mount Rushmore of athletes, right? Who are talking about the importance of so doing this ahead it's, of time. It's infuriating because it's like why isn't this just common practice? Face, yeah, 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 the best yeah, athletes yeah. in the world are doing this yeah. stuff preventatively to make them better athletes. And while I'm not going to put all the credit on the fact that they're probably doing this training as the reason why they are better than everybody, but it certainly contributes to their ability to be um, a higher level performer. And it it baffles me mm-hmm. why this isn't something that's just best practice right now just like we should have somebody who comes in works with the entire team gives them all of the skills and the exercises that they need to be able to do and then be able to do either ongoing care for people who need additional services or periodic check-ins or what like, treat it just like you would training mm-hmm. um so and i don't think that that's a part of the culture quite yet i think that that's a that's a hopefully in mental health, the culture of mental health, I think that's something that I we're, we've talked a lot about that, of trying to shift the dynamic of like, let's just wait around until something, you know, that's typically how things happen. Like, okay, I'm, I'm, everything's okay. It's reactive, it's not reactive. proactive. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And I think that sports is an amazing vehicle to try to shift that, to, to shift that idea. Um, and if we start just sort of incorporating this work into it, it won't be so threatening for people to be able to come to. So... That's that's one of the bigger conversations that I think we I want to continue to have. The UK, I've had a few conversations with some coaches over in the UK, and they talk a little bit about it, but it's like this clawing at like trying to dig themselves out to get to the to get to the players, mm-hmm. and it's not really that effective. And they don't really, they, you know, they the feedback I get is like, I think we're helping, right? Um, and even for the, the the coaches or the people that are doing the performance work over there, they're not working at the top level teams. They're mm-hmm. working at like Champions League or, or uh, sorry, Champions um, Series or like the lower leagues. So they're not even working with the best teams. Mm-hmm. Now, I do know there are certain individuals in professional soccer in Europe that are working with with people, but again, it's more of a reactive piece than it is of like, yeah, this, this is just who I go to for my for my mental health training. Well, and it's interesting because you talk about reactive versus proactive, and I think that's that's definitely one thing that serves as a barrier is that um, people, by and large, tend to still be a little bit reactive when it comes to mental health. If Sometimes that's because they're just, you know, in denial about the role of mental health. Other times it's because of what, I mean, we talked about Marcellus Wiley in one of the previous right. episodes and his comment about, hey, you know, if your, your ankle's hurt, you look at the ankle, let's, what caused it, let's treat it, that kind of thing. Right. And we talked about how it doesn't translate to mental health. And the reason why it doesn't is because mental health is not like, it's not as simple as one cause that you can view and one effect that you see right in real time. It's, it's usually something that happens gradually over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's multiple causes and then the effect can be nuanced and it's like difficult to understand. I think for that reason, reactive is not something not a great strategy because by the time you react you're probably too late and this is where mental health is very different than physical health is that you have to intervene much much earlier because the things that start to kind of join forces from a mental health perspective and in an underlying way and and gain steam in a very negative direction that can come out you think about like burnout or depression or other things right stuff can come to the surface when you least expect it but it's been forming for a long time and so i think that's where prehab or being proactive makes such a difference because you're not likely i mean the the biggest example of this is substance use. No one sees the line of addiction. No one no one decides to use a substance because they're like, well, I'm just going to get addicted. No Can't wait to get addicted. Yeah. I mean, right. the, the, the line of people <laughs> is out the door of those who said, it's not going to affect me. I'll, right. I'll never I'm get different. to that point. I'm different. Yeah. I can handle it. That's what everyone says. And then their brain crosses this imaginary line or, or invisible line 
um, that they can't see, which makes them go into the territory of addiction. Now it's a whole different ballgame. And mm-hmm. you're flirting with that danger every time you really don't do things from a prehab perspective and you yeah. don't take care of your mental health. Um, so it's interesting. So I think proactive versus reactive is one. I think the other thing that comes to mind, this, this is, uh, relates to your Mount Rushmore comment, is that I think a lot of people, particularly young guys, there's a spectrum, I think, when it comes to, um, mental health in terms of, I would say, self-confidence. I think when it comes to self-awareness and self-confidence, self-awareness, I think, is more important. Uh, self-acceptance and self-awareness. You don't always have to be confident. But where you lie on the spectrum of self-awareness, um, you know, in terms of being extremely self-aware versus being not very self-aware and in denial, I think has a correlation between your willingness to get help. And so as you see people like, you know, the highest performing athletes, Look, they deal with fans. They deal with all the. Most of them have like gotten to a point. Brady's a great example of like his self uh, self worth is not on trial here. Right. He's trying to see what, how far he can push himself to get the most out of his one life. Right. It's a challenge. It's a puzzle to him. That's not about like his own self worth. His self worth is kind of like he had a great family and he's lucky yeah. in a lot of ways. Right. It's very secure. I think a lot of people who aren't uh, in that position struggle to open up and get the help they need early on because they're in. When they're not as self-aware or their denial is high or their self-confidence is low, they're more likely to, to sort of delude themselves into thinking that they have to, they should have already had this figured out and mm-hmm. they shouldn't have any mental health issues or that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that delays a lot of people. I agree. And I think that's, I, I, you know, as we bring it back to, I think that's part of our culture, especially male culture, yeah. right? Like when things are wrong, we're supposed to have this just innate ability to figure it out, right? Without any guidance or any instruction or any help or any support, we're just magically supposed to be able to figure this stuff out, which is ludicrous when you yeah. just like break it down to like logical thinking that's that's completely irrational how are we supposed to do something when we can't when we've never been explicitly taught how to do something um and I, again that's why i think that sports is a great way to do that because i think it just brings the barrier down for them to increase their self-awareness and use other people as models of like oh they reached out and sought help and this is how they did that and they hear more stories of people that did that that they can relate to and it can sort of just continuously break down break down the barriers for specifically males but not just males everybody to get to get help definitely and i think you bring up a good point about males males being you know males particularly in the u.s or i guess in a lot of different cultures as a subculture is definitely an area where you know compared to non-males are less likely to be open emotionally less likely to be proactive get help that kind of thing yeah um so that's where we see multiple cultures or subcultures kind of combining in a way that's not uh, to the benefit of people and their overall mental health it's interesting that the the uk we talked about the uk being an example of, of a culture that's kind of behind and how that overlaps with the sports world it's ironic kind of uh in a way that the ted lasso show is kind of based you know in the uk with a I think Premier League, a fictitious Premier League team, yep. um, because you it it touches on. They've only had. I'm not going to ruin sport. You know, no spoiler alert needed. I'm not going to ruin the show, but it touches on two key things that I think we promote quite a bit. The fir- and by season, the first season is all about this coach with a different style who is really cares about his players and is willing to use that care to sort of get the the best out of the team. It also has a bit of a uh, underlying kind of cautious um, word of caution or, or theme of caution about um, unchecked optimism actually having some negative effects, which mm-hmm. I think was really subtle and kind of cool. Yeah. The second season brings in a, a sports psych. Uh, they say, I don't even know what they call her a sports psychologist, but she's really a, ther- sure. a yeah, therapist, therapist or just a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And it's great because she works with athletes on the team, but really along the lines of what we talk about, about the whole, the real person, the whole person, not just the athlete as a tool. Yep. Um, 
and it's it's just really cool. So I think it's interesting because um, within that culture that we talk about being behind, they they had the show as the, the being the setting in the UK. So um, we're going to talk about that show probably in some other episode once you finally get around to watching I, it. I'm all caught up. Are you really? I did. I binged pretty hard uh, over Thanksgiving break, and I'm finally all all caught up. Okay. So yeah, we're definitely uh, going to incredible show. Back. And yeah. one of the things too that I really noticed that's pretty. Definitely more apparent in season one, but definitely in season two is one of the things that, you know, we'll probably spend time talking about a whole episode on. And one of the things that I really noticed was accountability being like highlighted, which I think is something that we could have an entire conversation about. But like when someone made a mistake, they were accountable for it and took steps to, to rectify that rather than trying to find these like, you know, ant holes to try to get around it or find yep. different ways to get there. And I thought that was something that was, I don't know if it was done on purpose to like emphasize that, but I just felt like at every, you know, any every conflict, the resolution was done well. Um, like almost like how I would try to help people come together. It felt real, um, which was which was really um, comforting to mm-hmm. see of like people taking accountability for mistakes that they've made, apologizing, and then finding plans to move to be able to move past that and forward. I thought that that was a really a really good theme that I noticed. Not as much in season two. Again, mm-hmm. I won't spoil it. Lots of stuff happens in season two, yeah, yeah. but definitely in season one, that was one of the biggest ones. And I, okay. to your point too, I really enjoyed the, you know, I think we get a lot, I think we get fed a lot of like, be optimistic, be optimistic, be positive, be positive. And if you're only though, if you're only that, you, it's not great. And I thought they did a real, to your point, I thought they did a really good job of subtly bringing that in. And definitely in season two, you see a lot more of the, the downfall of that. Yep. And I thought that that was a really good piece um, that they were able to incorporate into that. Absolutely. I'm so excited. You, oh, you, you dude, it's ha- so good. <laughs> you, you hit it from me, man. I didn't yeah, know. I know. Um, Surprise. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> we're going to have to plan. Uh, we're definitely going to have to plan a couple episodes where we, you know, maybe do uh episode recap or, or sort yeah. of the more psychological aspects. We pull out kind of the, the themes. Um, so you know who Roy Kent is now. Oh, right? yes, I do, sure do. Do you see some similarities? Yeah. Or no, just a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. My sister says she thinks I'm him. So, um, it's probably just because I swear a lot. Yeah, probably. Life, but yeah. I try to keep it PC on, on the podcast, but, yeah. uh, definitely, uh, definitely pro, profanity, I guess you'd say. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, one thing I want to touch on here at the end, John, is just like what, you know, we know how important sports have been. We know how important sports and pro athletes are going to continue to be when it comes to the topic of mental health and really, um, impacting the cultural shifts because they have such a massive platform and um, they overlap with a lot of subcultures and they have a reach. You know, they reach a lot of people and people uh, look at a lot of pro athletes as role models for better or worse. Uh, I think lately it's been for better because a lot of them are taking this stuff so seriously and have been a great voice. Um, so we know that's going to be important moving forward. Where What are the changes, in your opinion, still needed in the sports world when it comes to the overlap of mental health? Oh, wow. Um from like a team perspective or team or um, yeah, I guess from a team perspective or just how those two topics overlap in the media or that kind of thing. Um, I think, I mean, we've sort of touched on it a little bit, you know, in this, in this episode, I think that the, the ideology of mental health and the practice of mental health in sports needs to shift pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. needs a lot of reform in that area. To, to my point, I think everything is just very heavily on the rehab side, right? Like we just sort of wait for something to go wrong and then we then we try to repair. So that's that's one um, that we need to shift that and we need to be preparing athletes before things happen because, you know, I've talked about this beforehand, but if you if you go through a massive injury, if you're going to be out for six months, you're going to be out for a season, um, you know, if you're, that's probably going to put you in the lowest point of your life potentially Mm -hmm. or at least one of them and then asked to sort of like 
rehab the actual injury and then feel good and be motivated and be, you know, working consistently. That's a hard thing to do. Yeah. If you've been taught the skills previously, you're much better able to access them in times of need versus like, oh, now everything's going wrong. I think I've mentioned this before, but the analogy that I always use is like if you're getting chased in the woods by a bear and you come across a bicycle, you don't want to have to yep. learn how to ride a bike right then. You want to be able to hop on and get away. Yeah. It's kind of the same concept yep. of that. So um, I think that that's definitely something that needs to really that needs to really shift. I think there needs to be more presence of it. I think there needs to be more than just one person, you know, filling a checkbox for these teams. Um, you know, and I'm not in, I'm not behind closed doors with these teams. I don't mm -hmm. know what the conversations look like. Yep. I, I think I'm a little bit more cynical on that side of like, they're like, well, okay, media is telling us and giving us flack for not having somebody. So we should probably just put someone there so we yeah. can get them off our back. I, that's probably more of a cynical side. I hope the conversations are, we want to be supportive. I think Rabel actually was talking a little bit about it, um, a couple weeks ago about mental health being a, a main focus for him in his locker room and for his players, um, on the Titans. Didn't work. Um, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Even with good mental health, there's no guarantee. No guarantee you're going to win. Yeah. Um, just kidding. Um, but I think – so I, I think that type of stuff needs to be more apparent. I think co it can go down to coach's level where it's not just like a singular person. It really does need to be a complete overhaul, like a holistic approach to integrating this stuff. And we're going to talk about mental health and education in our next episode. And it's going to be sort of similar themes around that. Um, that it can't just be this one-off, like, okay, great. Yep, we've got a mental health professional. Like, let's just forget about mm -hmm. it because we've got someone covered to do that. If you're talking about one person for a football team, that could be upwards of like 200 people, right? And that and now you're reaching like school counselor levels of people trying to support and you know, again, we'll talk about this in our next episode, but nightmares that you hear from school counselors trying to support 200 people. That's like, it's, it's impossible yeah. to, to, to meet the person where they need to be and give that level of support. So I think more professionals in the field would be important. I think more emphasis on proactive and prehab mentalities around just this becoming a part of training. Um, and then I'd love to continue to hear more stories from people to come out. I think as it pertains to culture, I think that when somebody talks about their experience with mental health or talks about mental health, the subcultures that they're, that they reside in, it draws attention to those cultures and makes it sort of like, you sort of give permission for the people that are within that subculture to be able to talk about it. Um, and there's definitely certain cultures within the United States, but also elsewhere where mental health isn't talked about or it's vilified even, or it's like we don't talk about that stuff or whatever it happens to be. And if you see somebody from within your subculture openly talking about it, it might give a little bit more credence and permission for you to do the same. And that's, I think, how you know, the slow matriculation of mental health that tends to happen. But the more voices we hear, the more presence we see, it will just become just a natural part of the conversation versus like we got to, we have to talk about mental health in sports. It'll just be mental health in sports. Yeah, I know you bring up some good points. You talk about like sort of services on the team and then also the, just the need for more people to speak out. I think yeah. services on the team, we've talked a lot about this and I don't know what the answer is because we keep going back and forth. I mean, to me, it seems like I'm, I'm, gradually moving more towards like the, in my opinion sports sports teams pro teams are massive businesses and i think they're always going to care about their, their bottom line i don't know that i would trust a team to really uh, back up what they say about wanting to have a mental health specialist on staff with without full transparency you know that worries me to me i think same the way the same way doctors right they have a surgeon on staff or a team doctor it's like all the stories that have come out about that doctor being told and knowing that they have to do what's in the best interest of the team, not the not the person. Mm -hmm. Huge problem with that. I think the same thing would extend to mental health Agreed. logistically, if not only just because of trust and the diminished trust for the players. Um, so in my opinion, 
I think where teams can make the, the most difference is providing like what we would call psychoed, which is just education around psychological topics, mental health topics consistently, uh, providing a forum for, for um, players to talk to each other about these things and have the education around mental health. I think that's where they, they can make the most difference. Whereas like the individual work, I, I really feel like they shouldn't have someone on staff. They should just have a pipeline to, to the to best professionals to. in the community that they can feed to. That way the player can really trust that um, this stuff is confidential because otherwise they're never going to open up about this stuff. And and even if they do, you know, I, I don't trust teams to not try to abuse that. Um, I wish that wasn't the case, but that's kind of my opinion. The second part about speaking out, this – I have some thoughts on this because I, I totally agree with you um, on the need for more people to speak out. One thing – a couple things I've noticed that I think are problematic is that I don't know if this has to do with mental health becoming uh, an untapped uh, market of business that a lot of people are looking at, which which freaks me out because mm-hmm. I think, um, look, at the end of the day, we live in a capitalist society, so that's going to happen. Uh, I worry when it comes to like exploitation and other things. It could just go in a lot of different dire- uh, bad directions. But So I don't know if this relates to that, but I, I see a lot of – I see a lot of people over-legislating how people talk about their mental health. Like if they're wrong for saying it X, they should have said Y. Or like the – you know, the culture you see a lot on, on social media about like, oh, it isn't this, it, it's this. This is like the classic you, um, TED Talk title, right? Where it's like, why are we saying this? We should be saying this. It's all about like whataboutism. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I don't think that's to the benefit of mental health. I think if people are going to speak up about their mental health and use whatever freaking terminology they want, excuse my language, they should be able to. And mm-hmm. I think it's to our all collective benefit because the more people that speak out, the, first of all, they get helped. Other people see them speaking out, which helps a lot of people collectively. And it moves the conversation forward. That cult, that slow cultural shift moves as quick as it can, I think. Whereas if we start legislating how how people are, what's the right or wrong way to talk about mental health? Or, uh, you know, for instance, you've heard a lot about like people feeling like we shouldn't only talk about mental illness. And it's like there's a fine line between saying that and, exp- and really coming down on the people who have mental illness and are willing to talk about it. Um, you know, we, we want everyone to talk across the spectrum about mental health, whether it's mental illness or just general stress. But we can't criticize the people who are coming out and talking about a diagnosable mental health issue because that is important too. Yeah. Um, so that's I, what I would say. I agree. I think this speaks to, you know, we, we've, we've talked a little bit in, in previous episodes, but this, like, I think we're, we're quicker to cancel than we are to listen. Right. Mm-hmm. So like this cancel culture is just like completely gone off the rails in my, in my opinion. I think in certain aspects, it's been really valuable to challenge thought, but now it's just run rampant and you can't, you people don't have the freedom to say anything or even make a mistake when they're saying something. Cause we're quicker to be like, to your point, like, no, it's not that it's this yeah, yeah. versus like, well, let me just actually listen to what the person is saying and trying to say. Mm-hmm. And they might just not know how to say it. And then maybe you can have a conversation or a dialogue about it. But, but shoving somebody back down who's trying to raise their hand to tell to tell their story or to ask for help is not the effective way to move the, the, the conversation along. So I think it's you're sort of seeing this conflict of different cultures sort of coming coming together. Where I agree, I think we've talked about this in other episodes too. Like we have a really bad tendency to go from one end of the spectrum to the other. So like we want we went from like not talking about mental health really at all, and now we're moving more towards like always talking about mental health and i think that usually to your point comes with exploitation and mm-hmm. people trying to make a buck out of it mm-hmm. and i think we are trying to not necessarily slow the progress of the conversation but keep it like within within yeah, the within it. the guidelines yeah, yeah, and keep it yeah. sort of where we can people can feel comfortable coming to it they're not going to be ridiculed for making a mistake yeah. if they say something but really trying to be i think the conversation should always be listen first then 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 yeah, make comments yeah. or reflections on that but i think it's reversed people are so quick to 
they probably don't even have an opinion on what is being said. They're just quick to be like, that's wrong, you're wrong, you're terrible, and then that's it. Well, and this is where the, the, everyone having their own opinion uh, and uh, having a voice or a platform <clears throat> to immediately and impulsively reveal it, I think, is what causes a lot of these issues because yeah. it, it does – it. It can lead to a context where, and I think you just talked about how do we how do we kind of guide this conversation or shape it or frame it. I think it's really key because you, the people who are opening up about mental health need to have what's considered psychological safety, right? Agreed. They have to have the ability to talk about this stuff and not be ridiculed for it just because of how they said it or when they said it or whatever, that kind of thing. And I think the, the instant opinion ex- expression... Um, is a huge problem. I think it's gotten better on Twitter, just from someone who's been on Twitter at different points for the last, you know, hop on and off the last few years. I think it's less negative now. Um, it seems like, you know, the people who, um, the people who are making comments are more likely to validate and less likely to just ridicule. So I think it's starting to shift. Um, but still, the, the unchecked opinions, man, is like, I think people love that about social media, but it's also just like, uh, does it come with headaches, right? Yeah, yeah. agreed. So we're going to wrap up for today. want to appreciate or just uh, thank everybody, excuse me, for, for listening to this episode of the Grim Drive podcast, for this discussion about mental health and culture. We'll be back next week to talk about mental health and education.